Welcome to a history of the space race podcast, episode 34, Gemini 4. The flight director says get back in. On June 3rd, 1965, NASA launched the Gemini 4 mission just a little over two months after launching Gemini 3. Gemini 4 is famous as the mission with the first American spacewalk. When the mission occurred, many at the time thought NASA was still trying to play catch-up to the Soviet Union. The Soviets had completed their first spacewalk on March 18, 1965, with Alexei Leonov during the Voshod 2 mission. In fact, NASA had planned to perform an extravehicular activity, or EVA, during Gemini 4 long before Vashad 2. Under the original overarching plan for the Gemini program, Gemini 4 was supposed to be the first attempt at a long-duration flight, lasting seven days. By late July 1964, NASA announced that James McDivitt and Edward White would be the prime crew for the Gemini 4 mission. Both McDivitt and White were part of the second generation of astronauts selected in September 1962. Neither had been to space before. By August 1964, however, just a month after NASA announced the crew selection, NASA had to cut the Gemini 4 mission down to four days. Continuing delays in the development of fuel cells meant that the Gemini spacecraft did not have enough power to last for a seven-day mission. As a result, NASA began considering other objectives for the Gemini 4 mission, one of which was an EVA. McDivitt and White, aware that an EVA was now on the horizon for their mission, pushed hard to prepare for it. Both men insisted that greater priority be given to the completion of equipment needed for an EVA, such as the spacesuits in a handheld maneuvering unit, also known as a zip gun. At the time in late 1964, NASA still had not made a firm decision on whether or not to perform an EVA during Gemini 4. But without McDivitt and White pushing for the equipment necessary for an EVA, NASA might not have been ready in early 1965 when they finally did decide to add EVA to Gemini 4. One of the biggest technical hurdles to performing an EVA was ensuring that the door to the Gemini spacecraft could actually be opened in a vacuum. Certain elements within NASA, particularly those at the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston running the Gemini missions, refused to approve an EVA without first simulating an EVA mission on the ground. The problem was, of course, how would an environment like outer space be created on the ground to simulate EVA? 
The answer was placing an entire Gemini spacecraft inside an altitude chamber. Normally used to simulate hypoxia for high-altitude pilots, in this case, an altitude chamber would be used to thin out the air inside the chamber to simulate the vacuum of space. Astronauts inside the Gemini spacecraft would then depressurize their own cabin in the spacecraft before opening the spacecraft doors into the simulated vacuum of the altitude chamber. McDonnell Douglas, the contractor that built the Gemini spacecraft, did not like this idea. The contractor feared that if something went wrong during the simulation, they could lose a spacecraft, not to mention the two astronauts inside the spacecraft during the simulation. But the point was made that if they couldn't risk opening the spacecraft doors inside an altitude chamber on Earth, they sure weren't going to try opening the doors for the first time 100 miles above Earth in space. The first practice for an EVA actually used the Gemini 3 spacecraft, with Gus Grissom and John Young as the astronauts. Their practice at EVA did not go so well. They could open the spacecraft hatch, but they couldn't manage to close it. So, turns out it was a good thing that they tried this EVA thing out on the ground first. Certainly, if Alexei Leonov had the opportunity to practice his EVA before the Voshod 2 mission, he might not have had so much trouble trying to get back into his spacecraft. Although the first EVA training took place with the Gemini 3 and its crew, EVA was never seriously considered for that mission. With Gemini 3 limited to three orbits, there was not enough time to perform an EVA during that mission. Still, Robert Gilruth, the director of the Manned Spacecraft Center, did not order altitude chamber tests for the Gemini 4 and its crew until March 12, 1965, and NASA still hadn't decided whether or not to perform an EVA during that mission. But then, a week later, on March 18th, Leonov performed his spacewalk during the Voshod 2 mission. This now spurred the Manned Spacecraft Center to fully support their own EVA during the Gemini 4 mission. NASA headquarters, however, was not entirely convinced about performing an EVA so early. Specifically, George Miller, who was the director of manned spaceflight, was skeptical. To him, it appeared as though the Manned Spacecraft Center and the Gemini Program Office was simply responding to Soviet success. Under the original Gemini mission schedule, an EVA was not going to take place until Gemini 6. Why in the world was an EVA going to be moved up two missions if not simply to respond to the Soviets? The answer was that the equipment for the Gemini missions was coming out at a different pace than expected. The equipment needed for a long-duration mission, 
mainly the fuel cells, was not yet ready. So the original mission goal for Gemini 4 could not be fulfilled. At the same time, the equipment needed to perform an EVA was ready early, thanks in part to McDivitt and White's insistence on giving greater priority to the spacesuits needed for an EVA. Miller was not the only skeptic, however. Deputy Administrator Hugh Dryden also expressed concerns that an EVA during Gemini 4 looked too much like NASA was reacting to Soviet success. But Associate Administrator Robert Siemens liked the idea. So did Administrator James Webb when he heard about it. So to address the concerns of the skeptics, Webb had Siemens write a memo explaining why an EVA can and should be done during the Gemini 4 mission, which Webb would then approve. This memo would serve as proof that NASA was not simply reacting to the Soviets. The EVA was not officially approved for Gemini 4 until May 25, 1965, only a little over a week before launch. NASA announced the decision to the press the same day. There was some debate about when the press should be told, with some favoring an announcement only on the day of the launch, or after the EVA was a success. Siemens, however, argued in favor of NASA's historic policy of openness. The result being that NASA announced the decision the same day that it was made. Besides an EVA, the other major mission objective was long-duration flight. Although four days was not as long as the original seven-day mission, it would be by far the longest American mission in space. The longest mission that NASA had up to this point in time was the day-and-a-half mission of Mercury Atlas 9, or Faith 7, with Gordon Cooper. Gemini 4 was going to leapfrog ahead by performing a mission more than twice as long. The medical establishment raised serious concerns about the health and safety of astronauts during a long-duration flight. The concern was that the astronauts would be facing days of weightlessness, which doctors compared to bed rest. Then, during re-entry, the astronauts would be facing high g-forces, causing their hearts to beat faster to keep blood flowing. The doctors compared this to suddenly running a marathon after days of laying at rest. The doctors feared that this lack of activity for days, followed by sudden vigorous activity, could cause the astronauts to faint during re-entry and possibly die. With hindsight, we know the medical concerns were really overstated. The astronauts going to space weren't going to just lie still for days in orbit they were actually going to be engaged in a lot of tasks. For the Gemini 4 mission, McDivitt and White had also been given a bungee cord to perform exercises. 
But with no prior experience in long-duration flight, the medical concerns remained credible. Another medical concern was potential disorientation during the spacewalk. To address this, McDivitt and White watched Leonov's interview about his experience in the limited film of his spacewalk. McDivitt and White formed a plan to maintain orientation at all times by using the spacecraft, the Earth, and the Sun as reference points while in space. The third and final major mission objective for Gemini 4 was rendezvous. The idea for attempting a rendezvous during Gemini 4 came about rather haphazardly. Originally, NASA planned to make early training attempts at rendezvous by launching a rendezvous evaluation pod. This was simply a pod released from the Gemini spacecraft that had a radar attached to it to assist with rendezvous. But the rendezvous evaluation pod was not yet ready by early 1965. An idea for a different kind of rendezvous came up during the Gemini 3 mission, however. At the time, Gordon Cooper was serving as Capcom and he was talking to Gus Grissom in Gemini 3. Cooper told Grissom that Gemini 3 would soon be passing the second stage of the Titan II rocket booster that had lifted them into orbit. Cooper asked if Grissom wanted to know where to look for it. Grissom replied affirmatively, and Cooper then responded with the direction and distance and added jokingly, proceed to see if you can rendezvous. Robert Gilruth and his deputy at the time, George Lowe, overheard Cooper's comment. From this passing comment, the idea was born for Gemini 4 to attempt rendezvous with the second stage of the Titan II rocket. Rendezvous would be difficult, the booster would have no radar, and the approach would have to be done visually. So, flashing lights were added to the booster to help McDivitt and White see the booster when in orbit. Moreover, McDivitt and White had no opportunity to train for this last-minute objective. There was no simulator yet designed to train astronauts in rendezvous techniques. This would actually prove to be quite problematic during the actual mission. The Gemini 4 mission represented a major step forward in NASA manned spaceflight operations. Setting aside the goals for the first EVA, the longest duration flight for NASA so far, and the first rendezvous attempt, Mission Control was undergoing major changes for this mission as well. Up to this point, all NASA manned spaceflights had been under the control of a single flight director, Christopher Kraft. The one exception to this was the Mercury Atlas 9 mission. Because that mission lasted about a day and a half, Kraft had put his deputy, John Hodge, in charge for a part of the mission. For the Gemini 4 mission, however, a manned mission would need to be overseen continuously for days. A single flight director was no longer sufficient. 
At this point, Kraft was promoted to Head of Mission Operations, and all manned missions would now be overseen by a rotating shift of three flight directors and their control team on the ground in eight-hour shifts. Kraft, despite his promotion, would still serve in the role of one of the flight directors, including during Gemini 4. But now, other flight directors would begin coming to the fore. One of these new flight directors who got his first shift on Gemini 4 would be the famous Eugene Krantz. If you have ever watched the Apollo 13 movie with Tom Hanks, which if you've listened this far into this podcast, you probably have, Krantz is the guy played by Ed Harris, who also plays the man in black in the Westworld series. As shown in the Apollo 13 movie, Krantz was famous for wearing a white vest made by his wife during missions. Krantz wore these vests because he wanted something that his team could rally around, and his wife suggested wearing a vest. Incidentally, his vest was always white because the three flight director teams were designated the red, white, and blue teams, and Krantz was in charge of the white team, so his vest was white. It became a famous tradition for Krantz to wear a white vest during every single mission, and this tradition starts with his oversight of Gemini 4. The Gemini 4 mission would also mark another major change for mission operations in terms of location. Up to now, all manned spaceflights had been controlled from a building at Cape Canaveral. Gemini 4 will be the first time that mission operations are actually controlled from Houston, in that same famous mission control room depicted in the Apollo 13 movie. Representing yet another break from tradition up to this point, Gemini 4 will have no spacecraft name. Gemini 3 officially did not have a spacecraft name either, but as you heard in the last episode, Capcom and Mission Control still informally called it Molly Brown. But Gemini 4 will not have an unofficial name either, and this was not for a lack of trying. McDivitt and White wanted to name their spacecraft American Eagle, like the clothing store. But American Eagle, the clothing store, did not exist at the time, so it didn't sound as strange as it might today. The name never stuck, however, because NASA headquarters put out a memo ending the practice of naming spacecraft. Headquarters was still reacting to that undignified name, Molly Brown, that Gus Grissom had given to Gemini 3. Not even the overly compensating indignity name of American Eagle could get headquarters to change its mind. In the press, some reporters would refer to Gemini 4 as Little Ava, for the EVA planned for the mission. But this name hasn't really stuck either, so I will be referring to the spacecraft as simply Gemini 4. 
Finally came launch day on June 3rd, 1965, and the press coverage was intense. Gemini 4 was the most watched mission of the entire Gemini program, mainly due to the excitement that had built from announcing in advance that a spacewalk would be performed. The Gemini 4 mission was also the first time that a launch had an international audience. Intelsat-1, the first commercial communications satellite, broadcast television coverage of the launch to Western Europe. Intelsat-1 had been launched by the Communications Satellite Corporation, a quasi-public and private communications satellite company set up by the Kennedy administration in 1962. Intelsat-1 had been launched only a few months earlier in April 1965 and placed into geosynchronous orbit. This satellite is a reminder that outside manned spaceflight, the United States is, and always was, far ahead of the Soviet Union in outer space activities. Domestic coverage of the Gemini 4 mission was also overflowing. In Houston at the Manned Spacecraft Center, a new auditorium designed to hold 800 reporters had finally opened. But on its very first use for this mission, it was already over capacity with 1,100 reporters having been given credentials to cover the launch. As a result, and to some controversy later, NASA had to lease a whole other building outside the Manned Spacecraft Center campus to house the additional reporters. Shortly after 10 a.m. local time, Gemini 4 took off from Cape Canaveral. The launch went smoothly with only a brief moment of pogo. Within minutes, Gemini 4 was in orbit. Once in orbit, McDivitt immediately began to attempt to complete one of the major mission objectives, rendezvous. To do this, McDivitt turned Gemini 4 around by flipping its attitude 180 degrees shortly after separation from the second stage booster. He then pointed the spacecraft at the booster with its flashing lights to help with visual acquisition, and he used the thrusters to head toward the booster. Except McDivitt found he could never actually rendezvous with the booster. Every time McDivitt activated the thrusters to head toward the booster, he saw the booster move down and away from him. He reoriented the spacecraft several times, but each time the same thing happened. Before long, McDivitt used up half of the available fuel for the thrusters attempting rendezvous. He had to give up at this point. Gemini 4 had a smaller fuel tank than later Gemini spacecraft, and he was under instructions to reserve fuel to perform a failsafe maneuver that would cause Gemini 4 to re-enter the atmosphere naturally if the retrofire rockets failed. Flight Director Chris Kraft had also told McDivitt ahead of time 
that the EVA was more important, so he had to conserve fuel for that as well. Here is where the lack of training or even serious mission planning caused Gemini 4 to fail a mission objective. As NASA mission planners later reasoned out, in orbit, you can't simply point at an object and thrust towards it. You can do that on Earth, but the mechanics of movement are a little different in orbit. While in orbit, thrust adds not only velocity, but altitude. Thus, by pointing at the booster and thrusting towards it, McDivitt was actually putting Gemini 4 into a higher relative altitude. The higher altitude also means that Gemini 4 counterintuitively appeared to be moving toward the target more slowly after thrusting. This is because at a higher altitude, Gemini 4 had a higher orbital period. In other words, if you draw Gemini 4's orbit as a circle around the Earth, Gemini 4's circle was bigger than the booster's circle. So the distance that needed to be covered to circle the Earth relative to the booster was longer. After the mission, NASA mission planners developed a method to perform rendezvous. Rather than increasing speed toward the target, the plan was to counterintuitively reduce speed relative to the target. This would put the spacecraft in a lower orbital period than the target, allowing the spacecraft to catch up to the target. Once the spacecraft had sufficiently gained on the target, the spacecraft would thrust forward to gain speed and bring itself into the same orbit as the target for rendezvous. A rough analogy is like two race cars on a circular track. If they are both traveling at the same speed, one of the race cars can catch up to the other by traveling on the inside track. Now, all of this could have been worked out by NASA before the Gemini 4 mission. Indeed, the NASA mission planners would later say this was not a difficult problem to work out. It was simply that no one had seriously thought about the problem before the Gemini 4 mission. If they had thought about it, and if they had put even a little effort into training the astronauts for it, they could have solved the problem. With Rendezvous now abandoned, attention turned to what was quickly becoming the STAR mission objective, EVA. White began preparing for the EVA by putting together the zip gun and getting all the equipment attached to his spacesuit. This was an exhausting process, and McDivitt relayed to ground control that they would be delaying the EVA until the third orbit while White took a break. Once White was ready, they began depressurizing the cabin, which took some time. As Gemini 4 neared Carnarvon, Australia, heading east, they prepared to open the hatch. The plan was to perform the EVA while the spacecraft passed within direct communications range of controllers and tracking stations in the United States. 
namely in Hawaii and the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston. The entire EVA would be broadcast live to the nation. As White opened his hatch, there was a momentary problem. The door refused to unlatch, and it had to be worked with with a ratchet before it would finally open. Despite being in low gravity, White found that the hatch was just as hard to open in space as it was on the ground. After opening the hatch, he fitted a camera to the spacecraft to record his movements. White stood on his seat while he and McDivitt communicated with the tracking station in Hawaii, waiting for the approval to go ahead with the EVA. The flight surgeon on the ground noted that White's heart rate had gone up, but everything was good to go. Hawaii relayed Houston's instruction that White was a go for the EVA. Hawaii also asked that White and McDivitt give a mark when White actually exited the spacecraft. Anxiously, ground control and the entire nation listening in waited to hear for confirmation that White was actually outside the spacecraft. Hawaii asked again for a mark when the EVA was starting. White acknowledged, saying they were still working on something. Then, to the frustration of ground control, they lost contact with Gemini 4. The spacecraft was entering a zone between the communications range of the tracking station in Hawaii and mission control in Houston, when neither site could talk to the astronauts. There was speculation on the ground and by news broadcasters that White had exited the spacecraft, but there was no way to know until Gemini 4 entered the communications range of Houston. Minutes passed as Capcom in Houston, who in this case was actually Gus Grissom, repeatedly tried to raise Gemini 4. Finally, after about four minutes of loss of signal, they could hear McDivitt's voice. Immediately, Grissom asked whether White had egressed. McDivitt confirmed, yes, White was outside the spacecraft now, performing the EVA. I'm going to play an excerpt of the audio that was broadcast during the EVA, but I want to provide a little bit of context before we get to the excerpt. So, at this point, Gemini 4 is communicating directly with Gus Grissom in Houston. But there are two sets of communication channels on Gemini 4. One is external that lets the astronauts speak with the ground, and the other is internal, also referred to as the box, which allowed McDivitt and White to talk to each other. While McDivitt and White are on box, ground can hear everything the astronauts are saying, but McDivitt and White can't hear anything that ground control is trying to tell them. About five minutes before the audio excerpt I'm going to play, Grissom told White that he had about five minutes left for the spacewalk. So at the start of the audio excerpt, 
Those five minutes are up. Grissom is trying to raise Gemini 4, but the astronauts can't hear him because they're on box. And, well, I'll let you listen to what ensues. Gemini 4, Houston, Capcom. Gemini 4, Houston, Capcom. Okay, okay, don't worry yourself out now. Just come on in. 
So, as you heard there, White was really enjoying himself describing the scene and talking about how he could see Houston. In their excitement, both McDivitt and White forgot to check in with ground control, and White continued the EVA longer than intended. Near the end there, McDivitt says they'd better check back in, and that's when you hear the famous line, the flight director says get back in. That line was actually said by THE flight director, Chris Kraft, breaking in to tell White to get back into the spacecraft. This was technically a breach of protocol, as only Capcom, that is Gus Grissom, was supposed to talk to the astronauts. But at this point, White had stayed several minutes longer than intended in the EVA. On top of that, you might have also heard near the very end of the audio clip that they only had about four minutes before Bermuda LOS. This referred to yet another loss of signal before the next tracking station could pick them up, and ground control wanted White to get back in before they lost signal again. The situation was taken in good humor though, and you could actually hear laughter from the mission control room. It's really hard to hear on the audio clip, but after Kraft tells White to get back inside, White actually says, It's the saddest moment of my life, but I'm coming. Overall, the EVA was an enormous success. White successfully used the handheld maneuvering unit, or zip gun, to move away and around the spacecraft. Now, to refer to this device as a gun might be a little misleading, because besides having a handle to hold on, it doesn't really look like what you might think of as a gun. The unit had two metal bottles that give it a bit of a super soaker look. These metal bottles contained the oxygen used as the fuel for the gun. And then narrow tubes from these oxygen tanks led to what you might call the muzzle of the gun, but the muzzle did not end in a single point. Instead, it split off to the left and right perpendicular to the handle of the gun and the whole device looked awfully strange. If you want to see it, you can click on the link in the episode description or go to spaceracehistorypodcast.com. White reported that the zip gun was easy to use and the best way to maneuver himself. He tested the pitch, yaw, and roll and did full body turns using the zip gun. He had so much fun using this thing, though, that it quickly ran out of fuel. During the EVA, White was also taking pictures. But as you might have heard from the audio clip as well, the pictures weren't very good. He couldn't get the resolution quite right on the camera. And on top of that, he was trying to back away far enough to take a picture of the entire spacecraft but he couldn't get a proper distance away from the spacecraft. Closing the hatch at the end of the EVA presented a few problems, just like the opening. 
The latch for the door refused to catch the first time. White also found that trying to manipulate the door in low gravity caused him to lift out of his seat. So McDivitt had to pull on White to give him leverage while he was trying to manipulate the door close and yanked harder to get the latch to catch. This was effectively a two-man operation, and White was sweating by the time the door closed. Still, this was not nearly as dangerous or difficult as the problem that Leonov faced trying to get back into Vashad II. With the EVA complete, the only remaining mission objective was to remain in space for another three and a half days. They powered down systems to save on electricity and fuel, planning to simply drift. The next few days was the first time that anyone tried to operate a multi-person spacecraft for more than a day, and the astronauts and NASA learned that maintaining operation was not easy. At first, White and McDivitt tried to switch off in four-hour shifts. One of them would sleep while the other would work. But they found that this didn't really work. It was very hard to sleep because of the automatic thruster firings to keep the spacecraft steady. But on top of that, as long as one of them was awake, the other was going to be disturbed. There was constant radio chatter from the ground as long as one of them was working. And in the cramped environment of the spacecraft, the one working would often bump into the one who was asleep. NASA needed to find a solution to these problems if long-duration flight with multi-person spacecraft, a must for Apollo, was going to work. During their time in orbit, White and McDivitt also worked on various experiments. Gemini 4 carried a total of 11 science experiments, making it the first American mission in space to place a significant focus on science. The experiments included radiation detection in the ionosphere, using a sextant to perform celestial navigation, photography of weather events, and learning exercises with a bungee cord as well as medical experiments with sensors to track bone loss in the astronauts. On day three of the mission, the spacecraft's computer died. It was unclear why the computer died, but this was not actually a fatal blow to the spacecraft as it might be to a modern spacecraft. All this meant for Gemini 4 was that the computer would not be able to adjust their angle during re-entry for a smoother ride and more targeted landing. After day 4, about 97 hours and 28 minutes after launch, White and McDivitt fired the retro rockets to begin re-entry. Without the computer to assist, they ended up landing about 80 kilometers short of the recovery area. Nevertheless, a helicopter from the aircraft carrier, USS Wasp, was on site within minutes to drop divers, who secured a flotation collar around the spacecraft. 
medical concerns were the first thing that had to be addressed after the four-day mission. During re-entry, neither McDivitt nor White experienced dimming vision or shortness of breath, as doctors had feared. Besides being tired, they checked out as being totally healthy. The medical experiments showed that they did lose bone mass in their fingers and heels. One surprising discovery was that the astronauts gained a lot of plasma in their blood, that is the fluid in which blood cells flow, but all signs pointed to full recovery within a few days of their mission. In the post-flight analysis after the Gemini 4 mission, NASA came to several conclusions for future missions. First, more fuel would be allocated to a rendezvous attempt. For safety reasons, McDivitt had been instructed to reserve enough fuel to place Gemini 4 in a fail-safe orbit in the event that the retro rockets failed. But now the retro rockets had been proven to work after sitting around in space for four days. There seemed no reason to continue reserving fuel for the fail-safe maneuver, which only hampered the ability to complete mission-critical objectives and experiments. Second, they needed to do something about the trash situation. After four days in space, McDivitt and White found that they were running out of space to put their trash away before re-entry. The future long-duration Gemini missions would last 8 and 14 days, respectively, and could be expected to generate a lot more trash. Finally, NASA decided not to perform another EVA for the next three Gemini missions. There were a couple reasons for this. One was simply a lack of sufficient training facilities. With Gemini missions being scheduled to launch every two months now, and a six-month training period needed for each mission, NASA was actively preparing astronauts for three missions at any given time. With two prime astronauts and two backup astronauts for each mission, this meant a total of 12 astronauts needed simulator time all at once. There just wasn't enough simulators and training facilities for everyone given the overlapping schedules. The other reason was that EVA looked easy. But this was actually a deception. White hadn't really been given any objective during the EVA other than just getting out of the spacecraft. In the future though, NASA will realize that when you have a specific task to do during a spacewalk, things get more complicated very quickly. Next time, we will continue this epic series of Gemini missions with the story of Gemini 5.